Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. We're coming to the end of our study on 2 Samuel. We've been going through 1 Samuel and then we went through 2 Samuel. We're almost done. Next week will be the end of it. But in the story so far, David is back in Israel. He was chased out of Jerusalem because his son Absalom wanted the throne. Well, Absalom is dead, David has returned, and there is this process of reconciliation and restoration happening. David hasn't always been a great king. There was a time when he just wasn't a great shepherd. And the judgment and repercussions from being uh, not a very good shepherd, they, they fell heavy on his house. Well, all that stuff has come to completion now, and David is back in Jerusalem. But the season he's in, in Jerusalem, is a season of rebuilding. And so what we're reading today in 2 Samuel 21 and 22 is this season of rebuilding and reconciliation. And seasons like this cause us to reflect. When you're in the process of rebuilding something because you messed it up or somebody else did, or if you're in the process of reconciliation and you're trying to bring you and somebody else who you're at odds with, you're trying to be in reconciliation, or two friends or family members who are, who are at odds and you're trying to be in reconciliation. There, there are things in that season of restoration that you have to consider, like how did we even get here? What led to all of this? Was, was there responsibility on my part? Was there responsibility on this person's part? And how do I get this person to see that the, their actions is what led to this? There's a lot of uh, consideration. How do I make things right? And what is right? All right? If we're going to talk about reconciliation, what is right in reconciliation? Because your definition of right may not necessarily be God's definition of right. All those things have to be considered as you're going through this. And I bring this up because these questions are answered in the text of 2 Samuel 21 and 22. And the author answers these questions by giving us three scenes. The first scene is a picture of David being influenced by other people. The second scene is a picture of David influencing other people. And the third scene is a picture of David reflecting on the two and his entire life through a psalm, a song, or a prayer. And so what I want to do today is I want to read through this text with that in mind. Now, I want you to understand, like, that, what we're doing today, this isn't the only way to read this text. You could read 2 Samuel 21 and 22 a hundred different ways. And that's the beauty of Scripture, that every time you come to it, there is something new and, 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 and illuminating to you in a way that you hadn't ever considered to, uh, b- before. And so all I'm asking is for us to read the text through this lens today, but I don't want you walking around thinking this is the only lens to read it through. And that goes for every study that we do. As I stand up here, I'm, I'm, we're going to read through the text, and there is a way for us to consider how it can be applied to us. But I want you to know that like, once you hear this, like, you're not free to never read 2 Samuel 21 ever again. Okay, like that's not a pass. Like, oh, I, I heard what Marshall said about it and, and that's kind of all there is. No, no, that's not even scratching the surface. The whole point of what we're doing as we gather today and as we're studying the word is to 
cultivate an appetite inside of you that as you grow and as you leave this place that you will go back and revisit this text, specifically this chapter and chapter 22. And you'll revisit it with fresh eyes. And in 10 years from now, you'll go back and you'll look at it again and you will see something that you didn't even see before, okay? So what I wanna do today is I wanna look at these verses through this lens of the power of influences on us and us influencing other people during this season David is going through of reconciliation and restoration. And the reason why I wanna do this is because I think that there's something for us to consider as we go through these seasons in our life. It is important for us to ask ourselves this question. As we're reconciling and rebuilding, what is influencing me? You have to regularly, as a believer, reflect on what is influencing you. Because if you're not careful, you will become guilty of being influenced by things that are not his word. And good things. You could be influenced by church tradition. You could be influenced by your mom and your dad who demonstrated great faith. This is a good and bad thing. You can be influenced in good ways and you can be influenced in bad ways, but you have to reflect regularly on what are your influences. When you respond this way, when this person says that, why do you do that? Do you do that because that's how you watched your coworkers respond and then they got advanced in their career and you're assuming that, well, if, if, if you want the same kind of advancement that you have to respond this way? You've gotta consider your influences because there are so many influences to people living in our day that just weren't even 20 years ago. And it's getting worse. A hundred years ago, the average influence on a a run-of-the-mill, just average American person does not even compare to the influences on the average American person today who has the entire knowledge of the entire world sitting on a phone in his pocket. And if we just live our lives thinking, well, like, it's it's all... um, like, it's not good or bad. Like, it's just kind of all information, and, and, I, and I'm just gonna choose how I'm gonna digest it. Man, you are a sucker. You're a sucker. Because if you think that all the information out there doesn't have an agenda or an angle, and it's not being pushed by one kingdom or another, you're lying to yourself. You have to be aware you gotta be as wise as a serpent, but in, in, as innocent as a dove, okay? So that's what I wanna do. I wanna consider the influences by watching David be influenced and also doing the influencing. Okay, so let's go into 2 Samuel chapter 21. It says, now there was a famine in the days of David for three years. Year after year, David sought the face of the Lord and the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel but of the remnant of the Amorites, although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them. Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. All right, now let's pause there because there's a little background that we need in order to kind of understand what's going on. If you've been following along with the story, you know that Saul was the king before David. He was wicked. He got replaced. David is now the king. And now we find out that while Saul was king, he was committing bloodshed against a specific group of people that lived in the area of Israel but weren't Jews. They were called the Gibeonites. Now the background of the Gibeonites is found in Joshua chapter 9. 
The story, very briefly, is after Joshua and the people of Israel crossed over the Jordan River into the Promised Land, and they conquered Jericho. You guys remember that one? They went around the city, and it fell, and it was great. Then they went up to Ai, and there was a whole situation where somebody stole something, and there was a whole thing that they had to deal with. Well, while Israel is coming into the Promised Land, conquering these cities, there was a group of people from this town called Gibeon, and they were big time afraid. Because they lived just down the road from Jericho and they heard what happened to Jericho. And so they're assuming, well, Israel's coming for us. So what they did was they hatched a plan and the plan was we're gonna put on these shabby robes, we're gonna, we're gonna look like we're foreign travelers, we got some, some coats with holes in them, some shoes with holes in them, put some dirt on our face and we're gonna look like we came from a long way away and we're gonna come and we're gonna make a, uh, a plea to Israel. So these group of elders, they looked like they were from a land far away and they came to Joshua and they said, hey, we're from a land far away and uh, we heard that God is with you and so we wanna make a peace treaty with you. Joshua and the tribes do not go to the Lord and ask the Lord what they should do. They just go ahead and make a a peace treaty with the Gibeonites. Now come to find out, the Gibeonites were a town in Israel. Now you're asking, where is this town? Well, I'm I'm glad you asked, because I got a map for you. So if you'll go to the map, we're gonna zoom in. Oh man, I can go anywhere. You guys, man, can we get one on that back wall? All right, so you've got, uh, what you're looking at here is is a map of the region. This is the same area as when uh, Israel had crossed over into the Promised Land. But you've got Jabesh Gilead up at the top right. I put that up there because that town comes into the story later. We're not there yet, but I just want you to know where it is. Um, But down around the Dead Sea region, as soon as you cross over the Jordan, that's that little squiggly blue line that goes into the Dead Sea. Right there on the H of Gibeah, that is where... Jericho was. So you know where Jericho was, now you see where Gibeon was. The Gibeon is where the Gibeonites were. So they were just over probably about 10 miles away when Jericho fell and they hear what's happening. So the Gibeonites, they come to Joshua and they make this plea. And the plea was, we're gonna be members of, uh, we, we, we wanna make a, pl- uh, a treaty with you because we're from far away and, and uh, we want you destroying us. Well, they make the treaty without considering the Lord. Israel makes the treaty without considering uh, the Lord or asking him. And now they're in this, um, uh, this covenant with this group of people that they were supposed to destroy. So God wants them to honor the covenant. So Gibeonites, the Gibeon, they kind of get adopted into Israel, even though they're not a town of Jewish people, they are treated like Israel. And now we find out that Saul has dishonored that original covenant and he is, or he was committing bloodshed with them. Now the other thing I want you to see is Gibeah, because as the story comes to an end, there's gonna be something happening in Gibeah, but I just want you to understand like how close all these things are. Jerusalem, Gibeah, Gibeon, it's all less than like five miles from each other. That's how close all this stuff is, okay? So we're at a place now where the story has been introduced and there is an issue of famine. Now, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on this, but I do find it interesting that there is a famine in the land because of sins that were committed by the leaders in that land. All right? I don't wanna go too deep into this, but we don't spend a lot of time considering that maybe some of the weird climate things that we're seeing around the world 
might be connected to sin around the world. No, no, no. no we're, we're enlightened people. We don't think that way. Surely there's no connection. And then we read the Bible. So I'm just saying, maybe, I should not say this. Maybe we shouldn't put our hope in electric cars to save the world, okay? Like, look, if you, if you drive an electric car, great, no, no issue. But what I'm saying is that the Bible is presenting to us a picture that there are much greater things going on that are connected to much greater things going on. And if a nation turns away from the Lord and turns towards sin, you're gonna see the repercussions of that, not just in the people, not just in the leaders, but also in the climate. Can't wait to get the email on that one. <laughs> Second Samuel 21.3. David said to the Gibeonites, okay, well, all right, so we've got this issue, there's this bloodshed. What are we gonna do? What shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? And the Gibeonites said to him, well, it's, it's not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul and or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, well, what do you say that I shall do for you? This is interesting because the Gibeonites are saying, look, we're, we're not looking for money and we don't need anybody to die on, 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 on Saul's behalf. And David's like, well, then why did you bring the issue to me? And then they offer how they think this could all be settled. And they said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel. Let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. Oh, okay, okay. We don't want anybody to die on, uh, on about this. Well, how do you want to reconcile? Well, how about you give us seven people that we can kill over this issue? <laughs> and the king said, all right, I'll give you them. Oh, this is fascinating. This is fascinating because Israel doesn't deal in human sacrifices. They don't kill people in order to stop plagues. They consult the Lord, and David doesn't consult the Lord. Who is he consulting? He's consulting the Gibeonites. The influence of a foreign tribe on David is dictating his decisions. Seven, the king spared Mephibosheth, the son, of Saul, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. And the king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, different Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Mirab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Maholite, the Maholathite. And he gave them to the hands of the Gibeonites and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord and the seven of them perished together. And they were put to death in the first days of the harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. Barley harvest would have been uh, like early in the year, probably like around April-ish. And then Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until the rain fell upon them from the heavens. That is a period of months. Months, not a couple days, not a couple weeks. Rizpah is out there shooing the crows and the vultures away from these dead bodies for months. She did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them that day or the beasts of the field by night. 
And David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done. And David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan and the men of Jabesh Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them. On the day the Philistines had killed Saul of Gilboa, and he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, and he gathered the bones of those who were hanged, to where Rizpah was, and they buried the bones of Saul and his son in the land of Benjamin and Zilah, the tomb of Kish, his father. And they did all that the king commanded. Watch this. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. All right. So Israel is under judgment because of Saul's actions, and there's two decisions David can make. He can either consult the Lord and let the Lord influence his decisions, or he can consult the offended party and ask them, what do you think needs to be done in order to fix this situation? Now there was a command back in, back in Exodus 34.12, and here's the command from Exodus 34.12. It says, be very careful when you go into the land never to make a treaty with the people who live in the land who are going, who, where you are going. Okay? So when you go into the promised land, be careful to make a treaty with anybody who lives in the promised land. Now this was spoken before the whole thing with Joshua and the Gibeonites. So they were already warned. And the reason why they were warned, don't make treaties with the people who live in the land is because if you do, you will follow their evil ways and be trapped. And what we're seeing is David being trapped by the influence of the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites come and say, we've got this issue. And David said, how do you think about resolving it? David doesn't go to the Lord. Why is the king of Israel asking these people what they think should be done in order to fix the situation? He's under the wrong influence, and the wrong influence re leads to the wrong conclusions. Because, be, because David listened to the Gibeonites, seven men lost their life. And we're told that after these seven men died, the famine didn't end. So what they wanted didn't fix the situation. And why does it fix the situation? Because man's solutions to God-sized problems never fix the situation. So David, here's a story of Rizpah. This is where she enters the story. The last time we heard Rizpah was in 2 Samuel 3, 7. She was the woman that Ishbosheth, which was Saul's son, and Saul's commander Abner were arguing over. Ishbosheth had took his father's, had taken his father's concubines, Rizpah. Uh, and he accused Abner, his commander of his army, of uh, having a relationship with Rizpah. It wasn't true, but it was enough to make Abner mad, and he defected and left. This is the last time we see Rizpah. So we know that Rizpah is a concubine, but we find out here that she's not just a concubine, she's a woman of compassion and a mom. And this woman, this concubine, this person who everyone in Israel would have looked down on because of her job and because of who she was, she was the one who brought David to his theological senses. David looks out and sees what Rizpah is doing and immediately his heart is stirred to realize that what he's doing is the kind of thing that you need to get in on. See, the world wants you to get in on their stuff, which is, let's make things even. 
How do we make things even? We take the people with the power, we take it from them, and we give it to the people with no power. We don't make things equal. We just move power from one group to another group. And we'll kill some people along the way. It's bloodshed, it's murder, but, but these, this oppressed class, we've got to fix this, and the only way to do that is to feed them some human flesh, to shed some blood on their behalf. That's how we fix this issue. And then you've got another woman over here who seems to have a glimpse of God that's just completely different than the rest of the world and the way they want to do things. And David's like, man, she's got it right. Because when David looks at Rizpah, what does he see? He sees compassion and mercy and grace. He sees a woman who's lost her children and he's caught up in the understanding of what you're supposed to do in the way that you honor God's people. And so what does he do? He sends for the bodies, the bones, of Saul and Jonathan, and he also collects the bones that Rizbah has been protecting for the last few months, and he buries them, and when he buries them, that's when we're told that God responds to the plea for the land. What's fascinating to me about this, and what I think the author is trying to get us to consider, is the influence that people have over our lives, and the way that influence dictates our decisions. You look at David, David was under the influence of the Gibeonites and look at what happened when he was under that influence. Nothing more than just payback. We're gonna answer bloodshed with more bloodshed. But the moment that David gets under the influence of mercy, we see that mercy is the thing that ends the famine. That's fascinating. Mercy ends the famine, not sacrifice. That's fascinating. Because we're convinced it's a sacrifice that changes things. You want to get God's attention, you better do something on his behalf. You want God to move on your, well, you better start showing up to church. You better do something. It's not based off of what he has done. It's based off of what you do. That's the backwards way of the way the world has started creeping into the church. Because the world's way is pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you do the work, and unless you do the thing, nothing's gonna happen. And that stuff starts creeping in through the back door, and all of a sudden, this thing we call Christianity isn't based off of the mercy and the grace and the goodness of God coming here, taking on human flesh, and doing the work to restore you before a holy God. Now it's about you figuring out how you can restore yourself before a holy God. Now, I'm not excusing walking in holiness, but holiness isn't to get God's attention. It's because you already have his attention. We walk in holiness because we follow a king who has walked in holiness. We're following an example, not trying to set the example. That's the big difference. So the question we have to ask as we read the first section of 22 is what is influencing me? If the real sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart, like we're told in Psalm 51, 16, then we have to ask ourselves, who is influencing my life and in what ways are those influences impacting my decisions? Are you making decisions based off of the voice of the nations or are you basing your decisions based off of the influences of Christ. Now here's the thing, those are the only two choices. In our world, 
with all the different ways. You, you, you could buy a car and it's painted 50 different colors and you can sit there and customize all the different things. There is no shortage of choices in our world. And we are convinced that those choices carry over into all areas of our life. So we think that when we're dealing with God things, we have lots of choices. You don't. When you're dealing with God things, you do it his way or you do it the world's way. And here's the, the, the tricky thing. When we are told by the world, no, no, it's not the world's way. In the world, there's a hundred different ways. You could do this, you could do this, you could do this. I'm here to tell you that all of those hundred different ways in the world, they're all the same way. There are only two ways of dealing with all issues. There's only two sources of influence. You are either under the influence of the king or you are under the influence of the dragon. There is his kingdom and there is Babylon. That's it. There are only two kingdoms. And the consideration that you have to make for yourself is when I'm looking at my life and the choices that I'm making, I have to consider where are these influences coming from and there is nothing off the table. Now this is gonna be rough and the reason why it's rough is because you have to get down to the deep root of why you do everything. What's on this table? Everything. The way you grew up. The church you grew up in. The version of the Bible that you read the kind of speakers that you grew up listening to and that you currently listen to, what's on the table, the kind of worship music you listen to, what they're saying in that worship music, the news that you watch, the entertainment that you consume, the kind of movies that you watch, the kind of shows that you watch, and how you watch them. Do you have the temperament to sit and watch a couple shows and then get back to something that's important? Or do you constantly just binge hours and hours and hours of your life consuming content that if Christ was sitting right next to you, you know he would not approve of? I'm talking about everything. I'm talking about how much time you give to gardening or outdoor adventures or, or how much attention you give to your phone, or what's coming out of your phone, or how many social media sites you're involved in, or the friends that you go get cocktails with, or the people at work that you go out and get beers with. I'm talking about who at work you spend your time with to the point where their way of doing things have started shaping the way that you're doing things. I'm talking about the heroes that you look up to. I'm talking about the way that people 50 years ago lived, the way that people 50 years ago treated their wives versus the way that people uh, today treat their wives. I'm talking about the way that you treat yourselves. I'm talking about the kind of self-care that you get caught up in. I'm talking about all the money that you spend on makeup and clothes and gadgets and trinkets. I'm talking about the kind of house that you desire to live in and the kind of car that you desire to drive and the kind of clothes that you have and how much you spend on your hair. There is nothing off the table because if you're gonna surrender to a king, he has opinions and desires about all those things because all those things are rooted in being influenced by something. Have you ever stopped to consider why you get your hair cut that way? 
Do you get your hair cut that way because you like it and your husband likes it or your wife likes it? Or do you get your hair cut that way because you saw somebody online who's seen put together and you want their life? Are you paying the payments on that car that you can't afford because you saw someone that you looked up to drive a car like that and you want to embody that? Look, everywhere you look, everything you're talking, it's all got connections to influence. And if you're not careful, you give yourself over to this stuff in an innocent posture and it starts influencing all parts of your life. Look, I'm super into guns. I love shooting. It's something I grew up doing as a kid. I'm super into it, I love it. I, I like rifle shooting, I'm super into pistol shooting. I'm not really into hunting so much because I just don't like sitting still and waiting for something else. Like, I wanna get up there and I, I, wanna, I wanna shoot. So I like shooting a lot. But if you get on YouTube and you start going down that rabbit hole, hole of, of gun culture, you have lost your pasture. <laughs> you hear me? I'm just trying to be transparent. There is a subculture that wants to influence my purchases when it comes to guns, that wants to influence the way that I see myself in, when, it, when it comes to this little hobby that I like. And if I'm not careful, then there's some guy on YouTube that I've never met, but I look at him and he's like, man, that guy's got to put together. Like, I want to be like that guy. And Christ is over there like, why do you want to be like that guy? Do you see where I'm going with this? You can't take anything off the table. You have to consider everything when it comes to what is influencing you because until you do, you're not really getting to the heart of the matter of transformation. You're gonna get 30, 30 years down the road and you're gonna be sitting in the same old church listening to me say the same old things and you're gonna be like, man, I don't feel like really anything's changing. I'm not growing. Well, I know why you're not growing. I know why things aren't changing. It's because you haven't dealt with what's influencing you the moment you leave these doors. You sit under God's teaching, you're like, all right, influencing, influence me, God, do something. But as soon as you walk out, man, there are nine other people that have their, their grips, their talons inside of you as far as influencing who you are. Wow. Now, I gave, that, I gave that illustration kind of as like a, like a, a, a cheap, like, look, like, okay, like gun cult, like, you look at it, like, that, that doesn't really seem like that big of a deal. Until when you start going down the rabbit hole and all of a sudden the side adjacent influences of that, and all of a sudden there's these, these like weird radical things and all of a sudden I'm telling my wife, hey, we need to start stockpiling food. <laughs> and we're gonna bury it in the backyard and I'm gonna convert all of our investments to gold bars. <laughs> Look, so I just said that, some of you are like, wait, that's me. <laughs> do you see where I'm going with this? Why do you do that? Because deep down, you're influenced by the panic in the world and not the comfort of your God. And when you read scripture, what, how did God provide food for the nation of Israel for 40 years while they wandered in the desert? He gave it to them every single morning. Do you really think he wouldn't do that for you? Look, I'm, I'm all for being wise and, and like, rice and beans are cheap. Let's buy rice and beans. Okay, but here's the reason why you buy rice and beans is because your neighbor's gonna need rice and beans, not you. You don't need rice and beans. Your neighbor needs it. Not man, I'm, I'm 
I'm doing, I'm, this is everywhere. I'm just covering all of everything, everything. I'm literally, I'm just going as, as, as it comes on my, and the reason why is because we live in a culture where everything is under the influence of Babylon. And we think, well, that corner, that's not, it's, that's, it's not really a big deal. No, it's a big deal. And I'm not saying you've got to be a Luddite and you're like, well, I'm off the internet. I'm not looking at anything. No, that's not what I'm talking about. You can be into things. You can be super into all kinds of stuff. You can stockpile. You can do your hair any way you want. What I'm asking is from scripture to consider the influences. Why are you doing it? Because if you're not careful, then you're going to start making decisions that don't come from the throne room of God. They come from a different kingdom. And you don't want that. Let's go to verse 15. Now we're contrasting, we've got the first scene, David's being influenced, now the second scene, David is doing the influencing. There was war again with the Philistines and Israel, and David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines, and David grew weary. And Ishbi Bonob, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels, that's about seven pounds, of bronze, and who was armed with a new sword, fought to kill David. But Abishai, his nephew, the son of Zariah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. And then David's men swore to him, you shall no longer go out with us to battle lest you quench the lamp of Israel. And after this, again, war with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibachai, the Hushathite, struck down Saph, who was also one of the descendants of the giants. Man, we got giants everywhere in this book. Now we're up to two giants. There was once again war with the Philistines at Gob and Elhanan, the son of Jari Oragam, and the Bethlehemite struck down Goliath the Gittite. Now this story is told again in 1 Chronicles 25, and in 1 Chronicles we're told that it's the brother of Goliath, not Goliath himself. The shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was again war at Gath, and there was a man of great stature. He had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number, and he was also a descendant from the giants. Uh Uh-oh, it's a six-fingered man. (laughs) And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. So now we're at the second scene. Previously, David was influenced, and now the author is contrasting David being influenced with David influencing others. Now, I want you to consider the parallel when we're considering the influence that David had over his men. This story is told in such a way to get your mind thinking about 1 Samuel 17. All right, so as we're going through the story, there's giants, there's a heavy spear tip, there's shafts like a weaver beam, there's connections to Goliath. This, th- these verses are written in such a way to get you thinking about David and Goliath. We've got four giants named and all of them were killed by David's men. This is, this is fascinating because what we're seeing is that David is a giant killer And the influence he has over his men means that he produces the same kind of men, giant killers. David's a giant killer, and the influence he has over his men means that his men are also giant killers. The influence that David exerts over his men leads his people for good. 
Now we've seen it lead for bad. His decisions impact the people under him. But his decisions here are influencing them for the good. Now there's not just one giant killer in Israel. Now there's many giant killers in Israel. And you can see the foreshadow of the church. Jesus is a better king than David, and he killed the greatest giant that ever was. Sin and death. Cut the head right off of it when he rose from the grave. But where does that leave the church? That leaves his people following in his footsteps. We serve a king who kills giants, and so we also following in his footsteps. We slay these lesser giants as well. That's the kind of posture that the leader is supposed to exude inside of his people. And so what we see here is from the last couple verses, David is influenced by others, and in these verses, David is doing the influences, and the author is asking us to consider, in what ways are you being influenced, and in what ways are you doing the influencing? Because here's the thing that you have to consider. The choices that you make to follow Christ are important. All the stuff that I just talked about when I was just rambling about all the stuff we have to consider that's on the table and the things that are influencing us, those have to be considered so that you are no longer under the influence of a foreign king, okay? But that's not where it stops. You don't just consider who's influencing you so that you can live your best life right now. The reason why you consider what is influencing you is because you are also simultaneously influencing others. And if you're not careful, you are being influenced by some foreign king, by some foreign entity, and that influence dictates the way you change, and these little eyes, these sheep over the pasture that you're over, they start watching the way that you make decisions, and now you are not just guilty of disobeying God's ways, you are guilty of teaching the evil ways to the next generation. This is what's on the line. Is Christ our influence and does our influence point to Christ? And that is huge. Because now you're not just sitting there looking at all the things on the table considering why am I doing the things that I'm doing? Was I taught this? Did I learn this? Did I learn it in here? Did I learn it, did I learn it on here? but you're not asking all those questions just so that you can get to the heart of why you're doing things. You're, get, you're asking those questions to get to the heart of why you're doing them so that your actions will be changed so that people who are watching you will not follow in your footsteps. Because in the same way that you have heroes, you are a hero to somebody else. If you're a dad, you know the weight of this. If you're a mom, you know the weight of this. And you know how the world is trying to warp and distort the family so that moms and dads stop being heroes. Why is that? Why is the enemy attacking the family? Because if the enemy can crumble, excuse me, if the family can crumble, then the enemy has the opportunity to reach the next generation with some other influence. If little girls are not looking up to their mom, but they're looking at people online or influencers or or, or, or celebrities, then whatever those people say is good and acceptable and normal, that's what those little girls are gonna follow. And it's the same with young men. If young men don't have dads that teach them what it looks like to be a dad, to be firm 
and bold and a protector, but also tender and soft and cries in front of them and says they're sorry and shows them how to cook, but also shows them how to skin a deer. You know what I'm talking about? Like real messy stuff, but also real gentle, kind stuff. Then we're going to have men growing up looking all around, well, what kind, how do I become a man? And the world says, oh, we've got so many examples. You know what I'm trying to say. And this one's a real doozy, isn't it? The idea that our young men, our children, they need examples that it can be found in the church, but once they're looking around in the church, they can't find any of the examples because the enemy has destroyed the family. Man, we are set up for destruction. So that's why this is important. 21 is important because you have to consider the influences on you because those influences then impact the children, the next generation, and not just children, other people, your coworkers, people who are, are following you that look up to you, that look to you as an example, that look to you as a support system. It is important for you to consider what you're being influenced by because you are also doing the influencing. Now, all of these two scenes, they flow into this final scene of reflection in 22. So let's get into a little bit of it. I want to start with verse 1. It says, David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He's my stronghold and my refuge. He's my savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies, from the waves of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me and the snares of death confronted me. And in my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called. And from his temple, (laughs) he heard my voice and my cry came to his ears. Now before we study how God responded, because it's bold, I want you to look at what God is doing in, or what David is doing in the first couple verses because as we're reading the first seven verses, these, these seem familiar and the reason why they seem familiar is because this is Psalm 18. It's, it is literally just Psalm 18, copy, paste. The author took Psalm 18 and put it right here, right after the influence, there is the reflection in prayer and song because the author wants you understanding what David is doing after he has assessed all the things God has done in his life, he comes back to the reality that God is the greatest influence over his life. That any other influence, it has wasted his time, it has cost him his family, and he never wants to go down that path again. But what's fascinating to me is what he talks about God revealing himself as. You're my rock, you're my fortress, you're my deliverer. When did God reveal that to David? It was when he was out in the wilderness around a bunch of rocks. <laughs> you're, my, you're, my, you're, you're, my, you're my protection, you're my refuge. How would David have known that God was his refuge? Because David is literally sitting in a cave hiding from Saul and he's looking at this cave and he's thinking, God, this cave is like, it's, it's like you. This cave 
is a picture of what you do in my life. As I'm literally being sheltered by this refuge, I am becoming aware that you, my God, are a refuge. And that is a very important and powerful way to read scripture. Now I've been doing a kind of an apprenticeship with a couple young guys in the church. Uh, this is my little salute to you gentlemen. We had a meeting last night. We were going through uh, Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, and we were talking about the attributes of God, and I thought it would be important to kind of take some of that, what we talked about, and put it in here. So here's what I want to do. What I have done is I've got an entire page of the way God has revealed himself to his people and all the verses that go along with it, but no joke, we're up to like probably 40 verses. So I'm gonna list through these just so you hear them and they resonate with you, but if you wanna go back and look these up, just download the notes on the website afterwards. These are some of the ways that God has revealed himself through scripture. God is compared to a lion, an eagle, a lamb, a hen, the sun, the morning star, a light, a torch, a fire, a fountain, a rock, a hiding place, a tower, a moth, a shadow, a shield, a temple. He's also a bridegroom and a husband, a father, a judge, a king, a man of war, a builder and a maker, a shepherd and a physician. He is spoken in terms of having actions like remembering and seeing and hearing and smelling and testing and sitting and rising and walking and wiping away tears. He has emotions like joy and grief and anger and love and hatred and wrath. And God, scripture speaks of God's face or countenance as having eyes and eyelids and ears and nose, a mouth, lips, tongue, neck, arms, hand, finger, heart, feet. God is wise, eternal, good, merciful, gracious, righteous, holy, just, independent, omnipotent, omnipresent, and unchanging. All of those attributes of our God are found in this book, and that's why you have to read it. Now I want to go to verse 8. It says, the earth, it reeled and rocked. Now what is that? That is the response of David's prayer. David prayed and the Lord heard him from his temple, and the earth reeled and rocked. The fountains of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils, devouring fire from his mouth, glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him, his canopy, thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness from him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. And he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. And then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare. At the rebuke of the Lord, at the last of his breath of his nostrils, he sent from on high. He took me, he drew me out of many waters, and he rescued me from my strong enemy from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. He rescued me because he delighted in me. He rescued me because he liked me. Now, in terms of talking about great ways to read scripture, David is a perfect example. Because as we're reading through these reflections, there's the smoke, there's the canopy, there's the thick clouds, then we're told that there's these channels of the sea that we're seeing. This seems like the Exodus event, doesn't it? 
But there's so much more detail here than there was in the Exodus event. And the reason why is because what David is doing is he's reflecting on his life and God's influence over him, and he's interpreting God's influence through the Exodus event. He's using Exodus to get the language to talk about what God is doing in his life right now. David didn't see the sea part, but in a way he kind of did. He didn't see the Lord ride down in a thick cloud and shoot lightning bolts out like arrows, but in a way he did see that. And what David is doing for us in this reflection is he's inviting you to start interpreting your life through scripture. Oh, it's a powerful tool. When you start looking at the season of life you're in and you, and you say, man, what I'm going through feels a lot like being tossed into the fiery furnace. There you go. That is the way you should be thinking about what's going on in your life. Because the world wants to give you all these, op- all these words, like, no, no, <clears throat> um, what, what you're experiencing is, it's, it's, it's this, it's, it's past trauma, it's because your dad didn't love you. That's what's going on right now. I'm not saying that isn't, in, that might not be the issue, but what I am saying is that from scripture we're presented with characters who interpret the seasons of their life using scripture. What am I going through? This feels like David in the wilderness. And if I can do that, if I can see my life through the lens of scripture, then I start using scripture to encourage me on how I'm gonna get out of this. Because if I see my life like David's season in the wilderness, what happened at the end of that season? God showed himself strong. So why in the world would he not show himself strong to me now in this similar season? I feel like the army of the Egyptians are right on my heel and I've got mountains over here and an ocean over here and I got nowhere to go, but I remember a story where God parted the sea and I walked right across on dry land. And that's how I should interpret the things that I'm going through right now. The invitation from David in this section is to ask yourself, can you describe your situation using only scripture? Now he does this through the rest of the chapter, 21 all the way through 46. I'd read it if we had a little more time, but I wanna finish on the way that he finishes. He goes to verse 47 and that's where we're gonna read. Jump to 47. It says, after all the reflection on God's goodness, the Lord lives. Blessed be my rock and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. The God who gave me vengeance and brought my people under, brought down peoples under me, who brought me out of my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. For this, because of all of this, that I just spent 49 verses calling out, because of all of this, what is my response? I will praise you. And I won't just do it in silence or in my own house. I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. I'm gonna sing your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and to his offspring forever. So just to close, David ends all of his reflection with one word, worship. So here's, here's the culmination of where we've headed today, and this is where I wanna close. David is modeling for us a posture that we should start considering for our own lives, and here's what it looks like. 
spend the time in prayer considering what is influencing you. All that stuff we talked about on the table, where does it come from? What is influencing you? And when you start drilling down and realizing that the influences you have aren't him, let them go. Because the things that are influencing you, that are him, those are the things worth keeping. And when David does that, when he reflects that, man, I spent a lot of time worrying what the Gibeonites thought about me. And that led to only more death and destruction. But the moment I turned back to the Lord, everything changed. Because as I look at the Lord, he's always been my rock and my refuge and my eagle. He's been the one that's been delivering me. He's the strong tower. He's the one with the mighty right hand. I want him influencing me. And so when I see his influence of my life, I worship. And worship becomes the posture that influences other people. That's why these chapters are connected and that's why I want you to see today. That we start with the consideration, what is influencing me? If it's not of God, I don't want it. And the stuff of God, I start getting overwhelmed because of how good he is. Everywhere I look, I start seeing his fingerprints and that's the kind of influence I want. And as I start looking, I start singing and as I start beholding, I start praying and I can't stop worshiping when I look at all the things my God has done, I'm blown away at him and I worship. And the nations see a worshiping man and they say, I want that. So the goal is to limit to the point of no influences this world has over us. But why? Why? So that we can be the proper influence over the nations. That's the connection. And the middle of all of that is worship. What should we be modeling as the church for the world? It's not clever sermons. It's not topical material that we think they wanna hear. It's not watering down and not talking about some of the stuff in here because it might offend them. No, what we're modeling for them is the one thing that they're missing, which is worship of the living God. Hear me. When a, when, when a non-believer comes in this room, what I want them left with is the raw reality that this is a room filled with people who have been fundamentally transformed and rocked by God and their only response is worship. And when they look around, the influence of that worship starts dripping off on them because when they leave this place, they can't stop thinking about that place that they were in. But I don't want it to just be here. I want it out there too. I want you going into your workplaces, into your classrooms. I want everywhere you go for you to have the influence over the people around you, but that influence is a direct line back to the throne room of God. If all you're doing is influencing people to become more like you, you have completely missed the mark. But if we could all get on the same page, and that page is, this world has no hold on us. The only hold on us is our king, and the world beholds that, now we're getting somewhere. Amen? All right, let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.